The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everybody. And a special big welcome to anybody who's here for the first time today. Really appreciate that folks are interested, willing to walk through the doors. I know sense at least that it's not always easy for that to happen and so please let us know how we can make this place more welcoming to all our folks here in the Twin Cities so that these simple but really profound teachings are available and a big welcome back to Gabe Keller Flores our office manager who's been on retreat for a month we survived without Gabe but it wasn't easy (laughs) And especially happy to see him this morning. Just drove back from a month with Ajahn Sushito, one of our more senior Western teachers who led the practice at the Forest Refuge, which is the more long-term practice place at IMS, Insight Meditation Society, sort of our grandmother institution along with Spirit Rock on the West Coast for this particular lineage of early Buddhism, also sometimes called Theravada Buddhism. Or folks that find these particular teachings, you know, over centuries. We can't say, oh, the Buddha said that exactly, but there's a conservative element in the Pali canon of recording, having recorded these teachings of this person 2,500 years ago. And surprisingly, I think, in a different time, different culture, these teachings really seem to speak to us because the Buddha came to understand his mind in a more uh, deep, subtle level that in a way is more subtle than even our cultural conditioning. So it really speaks to us how greed operates in the heart, how ill will or aversion operates in our heart, how the mind can become more clear and stable, see things as they are, and how this is really the path for living a more free, kind, wise life, right? To actually contribute to the mess and pain and sometimes beauty in our world, right? To really be part of making that, making the world, making our lives more beautiful. And so we're finishing up a series of talks on working with the thinking mind, a real central practice, and I just want to share a few thoughts and save a little bit more time to hear from you this morning. Um, First, a passage from Ajahn Sumedho, a a brother monk of Ajahn Sushito, uh, another Western, senior Western Buddhist monk, now retired in his mid-80s. Ajahn Sumedho has been quite influential in Buddhism here in the West. And this is a, a wonderful book called The Mind and the Way. And right at the very beginning, near the beginning of that book, Ajahn writes, The Buddha's practice is to abide in a pure mindfulness, which there is what we call insight knowing or direct knowledge. It is a knowledge that isn't based on perception, an idea, a position, or a doctrine. And this knowledge can only be possible through mindfulness. What we mean by mindfulness is the ability to not attach to any object, 
either in the material realm, so the body, the five physical senses, or the mental realm. When there is no attachment, the mind is in a pure state of awareness, intelligence, and clarity. This is mindfulness. The mind is pure and receptive, sensitive to the existing conditions. It is no longer a conditioned mind that just reacts to pleasure and pain, praise and blame, happiness and suffering. For example, if you get angry right now, you can follow the anger. You can believe in it. You can believe it and go on and on creating that particular emotion. Or you can suppress the anger and try to stop it out of fear or aversion. However, instead of doing either, you can reflect on the anger as something observable. Now, if anger were our true self, we wouldn't be able to observe it. That is what I mean by reflection. What is it <coughs> What is it that can observe and reflect on the feeling of anger? Or you could substitute any mind state or emotion. What is it that can observe and reflect on the feeling of anger? What is it that can watch and investigate the feeling, the heat in the body or the mental state? That which observes and investigates is what we call a reflective mind. The human mind is a reflective mind. And sometimes, especially in this Thai force tradition, where Ajahn Sushito and Ajahn Sumedho, and we've had um, Amatanasanti here a couple times. She also comes out of that tradition. Many of us have practiced in that tradition in different times, in different ways. Ajahn Jyotipala, who was here teaching yesterday with Win Fricky, the art and dharma workshop that we had. He's also in this Thai forest tradition, um, starting, started by some monks, Ajahn Man and Ajahn Cha, uh, Thai Buddhist monks in the 1900s. It's kind of a reformed, back-to-the-basics movement that happened in Thai Buddhism in this last century. And uh, it's, again, it's sort of common ground, comes out of this very simple uh, kind of reform movement. That's why in some ways we're not so much Theravada Buddhism as we are this back to basics. What did the, the Buddha say? What was the Buddha saying about the human heart, the human mind? How is that relevant, being a human being here and now at this time? And it's really, you know, this appreciation that the problem is right here, whatever, wherever we are in our life, we always start with the presumption with our own heart and mind. There's a famous teaching that really makes this point. It, it's an unusual teaching from the time of the Buddha because it stars a, a lay person who would go visit the monastics after lunch. They'd get their meal pretty early in the morning. They'd walk into town. They'd be offered food from the lay people and they'd go back into the woods on the edge of these villages and the monks would have their meal, clean up, and then talk about their practice before they'd kind of go off to their own camp and practice through the afternoon into the evening until the next morning when they walked into town to get their food together because the monks and nuns couldn't keep food overnight. They had to get a meal from the lay people every day. And so this particular story there was a layperson who liked to go check on the monastics 
after they've had their meal, because they were always talking about Dharma, and this layperson was really interested in practice too. And so he heard some monks talking about, you know, they're trying to figure out about where the actual cause of suffering. Was it the fact that we're sensitive beings and we see things we like and then we crave them or we hear about things we like and we crave them or we have certain experiences and we want it back or, or just the opposite. You know, we see things we don't like and we want to get rid of it. So is it that we're sensitive? Is that the problem? And if only we weren't so sensitive to the joys and sorrows of life, then there wouldn't be suffering. Or is it that there are beautiful and and ugly objects of experience? Is that the problem? So if only everything was sort of ordinary, like oatmeal, unless you're one of those people who love it. (laughs) But if everything were sort of ordinary, then we wouldn't suffer. Not too great, not too bad. And so they're kind of having this discussion and this person, Chitta, is sort of sitting on the side listening to these monks discussing this Dharma question. What is the origin of suffering? Is it that we come, we're born, and we're really sensitive to joys and sorrows and we get thrown around because of that sensitivity and if only we weren't sensitive? Or is it because there are beautiful and horrendous things that we see, that we experience, that we hear about, and that throws us off, causes suffering? And eventually, I don't know why, uh, I don't think it says in the discourse, but they ask this layperson what he thinks is the issue. Chitta is this person's name, which is also the word for the heart or the mind, chitta. And so uh, he says, well, he gives a simile. He says, if you have two oxen that are yoked together, how they do with the ropes or with the wooden harness, you know, and one is of one color and the other ox is of another color, right? Would you say that the, this ox is the fetter on this one or this ox is sort of oppressing this other one? And they would say, no, it's neither one of the cows or oxen's fault. It's the yoke that ties them together that's the problem. And so this is the simile that Chitta uses So it isn't the sensitivity of my eye or the sensitivity of my skin. And it isn't the object that I see or the object that I think about or the fact that I can think or I can feel, can see, can hear. So it's not the sensitivity, that's one ox, and it's not the object, that's the other ox. It's what yokes the sensitivity with the objects of experience. So what is that? Some of you know this story or this teaching. But for those who don't know the teaching, what is it that ties the sensitivity of our heart with the objects we, the pleasant and unpleasant objects that we experience in life? What ties the two together? So, uh, hmm? Attachment, yeah. It's that clinging, the mind Right, the sensitivity, there's sensitivity, just comes with being a human being. There's pleasant and unpleasant objects of experience. That just comes with being a human being. Neither of those two things can be avoided. I mean, we're all sensitive in different ways. Some people don't see, but they're still sensitive beings, right? So we're all sensitive. We all have a diverse set of experiences, 
joys and sorrows, right? That's a common phrase in Buddhism. The 10,000, like to describe human existence as the 10,000 joys and sorrows, right? Like there's an enormous diversity in the kinds of joys that come our way and the kind of sorrows that come our way. So that's part of the territory. And the problem, human suffering comes when something arises that yokes these two things together. And the general understanding, it's a wrong understanding that we call attachment or clinging or grasping or identification. I think I might have mentioned this line from Joseph Goldstein last week. Um, Identifications imprison us in the content of our conditioning. Identifications imprison us in the content of our habits, our conditioning. Right? So that's another word for attachment, identification, that clinging. Right? So because of sensitivity, because of the joys and sorrows that show up, the mind has this has stumbled upon this habit, strengthened over time, this habit to cling, to like the pleasant, to dislike the unpleasant, and to think about our likes and dislikes incessantly. And when we get tired about thinking about a particular like or a particular dislike, we find another thing to think about, another thing we like or dislike. And all the neutral experiences in our life we don't think about so then even that is a psychic weight. We're psychically ignoring everything that's neutral, not clearly pleasant or unpleasant. All three are stretch, stressful. Needing to be obsessively interested, wanting the pleasant, neurotically wanting to get rid of or deny or distract ourselves from the unpleasant, and neurotically ignoring the neutral. And so in Buddhism we say that is the underlying uh, experience of suffering, of stress, or those three activities. How the mind is yoked, how these two parts of our existence of different experiences, pleasant, neutral, unpleasant, and sensitivity that just comes with being a human being, how something has developed what we call attachment. So a lot of what we're learning is how not to feed the attachment. So I'll just mention one more thing and then open it up for discussion. And I I forget if I mentioned this on Sunday morning. I think I mentioned it at the Sunday night talk. But there's a really interesting, simple discourse. Again, just the, the Buddha, a guy who had come to understand his mind, his heart very deeply and could articulate some of what, she, what he had come to understand. This is one of the similes he uses. Just as if a great mass of fire of 10, 20, 30, 40 cartloads of timber were burning, and into it a person would periodically throw dried grass, dried cow dung, which was a fuel, is still today a fuel that people who don't have other materials use to cook food and stuff, dried timber, so that the great mass of fire thus nourished, thus sustained, would burn for a long, long time. Even so, practitioners, and one who keeps focusing on the allure of those phenomena that offer sustenance. That's a fancy way of saying being attached, clinging, grasping, being identified. And one who keeps focusing on the allure 
of those phenomena, those experiences that offer the sustenance, the fuel for that neurotic activity we call suffering, being caught up in the drama, right? And that word is literally flammable phenomena, right? That's getting translated here as sustenance. Flammable phenomena. Craving develops with craving as a condition, sustenance, with sustenance as a condition, becoming. We become the one who wants to get rid of, wants to get that. With becoming as a condition, we're in that whole cycle of birth. I'm now the person who really thinks, if only I get this or get rid of that, then I'll be happy. So I've taken, we say in Buddhism, taken birth as the person who thinks, if only, right? I'm in that little bubble of that the mind itself has created. And we suffer in that bubble. Thus, right, so this is the origin of the entire mass of suffering and stress, says the Buddha. And in the same way, he, the second part is, you know, if you don't throw dried dung, right, if you don't add fuel to your own neurotic fires, they go out, they cease. And the whole mass of stress and suffering can cease. We've seen this. We've caught our mind in the activity of feeding some drama. And sometimes when there's enough balance, enough clarity, wisdom, kindness, the mind simply ceases to feed the fire. Now the interesting thing here, this is a subtle but important point, even if we're at that point where we've been caught in some neurotic drama, feeding it, we catch it, we cease feeding it, does the fire immediately go out? Not if we've been feeding it for a while because it's got some fuel that's still burning. So one of the things that really catches us is when we stop obsessively throwing more fuel into the fire, it's going to continue to hurt for a while. Have you noticed that sometimes? If you've been like really dredged up something and really been spinning with it, and now you know better, out of compassion, out of wisdom, you know better not to sort of feed that drama, but the body energetically, emotionally, viscerally, there's still a yucky feeling. Couldn't be even for a while before the fire goes out. And the key here is because we're still hurting, we'll be inclined to want to think about why we're hurting. And that's how we end up feeding it again. So we have to be very vigilant, like just to be willing to feel what it feels like for the fire to continue burning as long as it has some wood or fuel to burn. But it slowly, gradually fades away and then the mind's free of it. So it's really important to have that patience, that tolerance for whatever drama we've whipped up. Now we've ceased whipping it up, but it's still there reverberating in the body and mind for a while. And not to take the bait because it's hurting it feels right to throw more fuel in the fire. So we got to be really vigilant every time we notice that it's still burning to have compassion, to allow for that patience, that wise patience, like, oh yeah, this is hurting because I obsessed in an inappropriate way. That's the mind looking at what is alluring. So like if, an, if it's an anger drama, we're looking at the thought, what that person did to me, 
right? Oh, he said that to me, she said that to me, right? And then we feed it again, we crunch up again. It's like throwing more wood in the fire. And then the, the basic question is, is this helping, right? Do I need to think this? Is it helping me, somebody else? No. All it's doing is adding fuel. So it would be nice to hear some of you share now. You have about 15 minutes before the kid come, kids come in. Just your own, working with your own thinking mind, questions that you have, sharing ways you fed the fire, ways that you have stopped feeding the fires, testimonials about the fire eventually going out. I mean, not, not all the fires, but some of them. We'll start with you over here and then go to Carrie after you're done. And if you don't mind, we do record on Sunday mornings, but if you feel like saying your name, feel free to do that. I'm Zoe. Just keep talking, Zoe. He'll adjust the okay. volume. Um, so I am meeting a relative that I've had trouble with since my... It's so loud. Okay. <laughs> um, who I've been having trouble with for a very long time, and um, I can't stop thinking about it. It's um, Since I've been started meditating, it's gotten a little bit easier um but since i'm meeting this person today i'm like freaking out um because i have to like really plan out what i'm going to say to this person before i say it because often things are when i'm trying to be kind and say things um it's taken at completely like a 180 degree difference um so i really have to plan out how i'm going to talk um which makes me you know it's obsessive so um, I don't know how to make the conversation go smoothly without thinking so much about it. Yeah, because on some level we know that we can't account for every permutation, every possibility of what might play out in the interaction. So what might help your heart feel more confident and therefore put down the spinning is not so much to sort of imagine and plan out a perfect scenario because it will always the mind will always know there's some lie in that like you don't there's always chaos in the system so you don't really you can't ever get it completely right ahead of time and how you're imagining it is not what's going to happen and you know that on some level the mind knows that but what you can do is you can ground your heart in some principles that don't change, don't come and go, like I care about my life and I don't want to add any suffering here and I don't really want the other person ultimately to suffer, even if in moments I do, you know. But when I'm more balanced, I don't really want anybody, there's enough, human beings have enough suffering, right? So I don't want that. Now, that, that's a stabilizing thought. That's not a thought that has to come and go. We can be grounded. We call that compassion, right? Like, and the other side that we can really ground into is the more wisdom side, so the compassion and wisdom, which is knowing that life is an essentially ungovernable. So you know that about the interaction that as much as your intention is not to contribute to your suffering or their suffering, the wisdom part of it is knowing that it's an uncertain and ungovernable thing. 
and really like owning that truth. Like I'm going to do my best because I care. I have this compassion. And it's not completely controllable or governable. So I'll, but that's okay because even if the mind ends up making a mess of it, saying something inappropriate or that's off, right? it's not over. It's just like then that's the new thing to have compassion around, to understand that it's ungovernable. But we can keep learning because ultimately what we'll trust is I know how to show up. I don't know what to say, but I know how to be present. And out of that like capacity to be kind and clear, because we have sort of like in terms of wisdom, we have two approaches to be wise. One is to pretend that we know exactly what we should say. And then we're sort of imitating what we planned out. right? And the other is to know that we don't know, but I'm going to be really vividly present and trust that being really present, doing my best not to be afraid, that in that nimble creative space of being present, perhaps I might end up being somewhat skillful more skillful than I would if I tried another strategy. And that's more of a Buddhist approach, is to be grounded in the compassion and in the wisdom that we can ultimately control it, but we can learn how to be vividly present. And you can even cue yourself. There are statements you can say that won't be weird to the other person, like, I don't really know what to say here, but let me do my best. right? Or I probably won't say this perfectly, but I'm going to try because I need to say something here. So give me some space, please, or something like that. So that you're, you're basically saying out loud that I, I care about our relationship. I care about what I'm carrying in my own heart. I want to be skillful. It probably won't be perfectly skillful. Give me some time to do my best. And that, that really helps stabilize us. And the other person may not know what we're talking about when we, or if we said something like that. But it might really stabilize your own presence in that difficult place. Yeah, thanks for sharing with us, Zoe. You want to pass it to Carrie in the corner there? I um I started the sit today with a really agitated mind. Um, and so, Mark, you said something about no matter what's going on in the mind, can the heart like open to it or be okay with it or is it workable um and that was a really helpful cue just like as a reminder to keep coming back to the sensation in the body when the mind wants to keep proliferating whatever it's um focusing on so yeah not feeding the fire <laughs> over and over again um but then you said something about how you know the fire will keep burning um cuz it's been we've been feeding it for so long and what came to mind was personality so just like your whole personality is essentially that it's like what you've fed yeah your that's whole another world. way of thinking about karma yeah yeah so and so when you have like things in your personality that you identify with that you you know on some level is not really you in a sense but you do you kind of you want a change there because whatever it is it's painful like to have that to see that in yourself so I'm not really sure what the question is here but 
can you get a sense of like how you reconcile that maybe i have a sense it's like compassion plus um you know a willingness to go in the unknown what a willingness to go into the unknown did you finish go ahead and finish no yeah I'm, i'm finished yeah, I mean, uh, what came to mind, that's such a powerful point because when, like, even in terms of what Carrie was talking about, those personality patterns that we start over time being more present, more aware, to recognize that those personality patterns are there because they're being fed. And to the degree that a particular pattern isn't supporting our own happiness or the happiness of others, well, then the mind is going to naturally stop feeding that pattern. And what came to my mind was this, you know, as I kind of, after, as a young adult, really got into um, meditation practice, and in a w- way that seemed weird to a lot of my f- friends, but especially my family back then in the 80s. And, uh, and I noticed sort of the way I deflected, like whenever I'd come home, I was living away from my family, which is mostly from Minneapolis. I was both on the West Coast and East Coast in those years, and um, when I'd come home, I had this way of being really, like, try to be funny and silly and not serious at all. Because it was a deflection about the tension that they didn't know what Mark was up to. And it seemed weird, a little cultish. And, <laughs> and so I was just, like, really light and really funny and silly and, you know, making light of everything. And, and then over the years, you know, I started seeing that was just fear my own fear about being real and kind of being who I was. And, and it was hard. And then, you know, it was a comfortable thing for both of us. They get used to it. I got used to it, you know. And it was really hard to stop feeding that fire in terms of being around my siblings and my parents when they were alive. And then just to not knowing who I would be. You know, and they don't know who I, once that pattern starts getting weaker because it's not getting fed, neither of us knew who we were anymore. You know, like who is Mark or Mark is wondering who is Mark, like when I'm in this situation with my family. And And that's the thing about the only thing we know is right is to stop feeding that fire. We don't know what's gonna happen, like what will be there when that fire begins to go out. We'll see when we get there, kind of. Did you want to say more, Carrie? No, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up for us. Who'd like to share next? Yeah, over here and then here. Is it June? Victoria, sorry, Victoria. Um, I'm Victoria. Is this on? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I just had an epiphany. This is very timely and helpful. Um, I'm thinking about a conversation I had very recently with somebody who's very central in my life, and of course it's the people who are most central who can drive us most crazy and it can get most complicated and the history piles up. And So we had a good conversation yesterday and and I I, I was thinking in terms of progress was made um, in understanding and in letting down defenses. And I'm thinking about the what you said about throwing fuel on the fire that I can really relate to that and when I 
woke up this morning, I thought, boy, we made so much progress. Now maybe we should talk about this other thing that we haven't addressed yet and see if we can really drill down on that and really get it all aired out. And it occurs to me that now I'm thinking about the part where you said the the feeling lingers, right? You You kind of let go, you get some distance, but the feeling sticks around. And I realize, okay, so that feeling sticks around, and so my reaction is, let's find another aspect of this dynamic to throw some more grass on the big fire and get it going again and see if we can really do it right. So, <laughs> And you saw all that. That's amazing. Yeah, really? I'm pretty pleased. <laughs> I mean, it's subtle. And just between you and me, I think my husband will also be pleased because I'm not going to bring it up. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah, th- thanks, Victoria. Yeah, over here. Yeah, that's so cool. Hi, uh, Ruth. Um, I was wondering if you could say more about our ignorance of the neutral that you talked about today. And you've, you've mentioned it a few times in the past couple of weeks, and that's I think a key insight for me to start to cultivate paying attention to the neutral, that's part of it. But also I'm thinking about uh, something that Thich Nhat Hanh wrote, which is that according to his reflections, all um, even the neutral can be brought into the positive, can be cultivated into a positive feeling. And I don't know if you think that's a good idea or have tried that or maybe it's just better to leave it as neutral and really focus on on cultivating the neutral yeah that's really those are all very deep subtle and essential questions in this awakening process so let's just experiment a little bit with what ruth was pointing to because right now always probably in life the bulk of our experience of the body and mind is relatively neutral but it doesn't seem that way because we're really good at ignoring it and focusing on the what seems most pleasant or most painful in any moment. So, But we can intentionally right now be aware of what's neutral. And, and this goes to your second point, Ruth. One way for you right now, for all of us right now, to be intimate, open, sensitive to what's neutral is a kind of quality of love. Right, because love is like when you're hanging out with your pet, or with a good friend, or a good chair that you like at your house or apartment, whatever it might be. You know, you take it all in. The the the, the dings, you know, the the parts you don't like that it's scratched here, you know, or whatever. Your cat has bad breath. <laughs> the parts you like, like the thick coat. But you also, when, there, when there's that more natural, wholesome uh, quality of love, you take in the neutral too, right? Because you, you like everything. That's like people say, my wife, my partner, and I, you know, when the cat comes in from outside, our cat's an outdoor cat a lot of the time. You know, we like to smell the cat. Like it has a good smell. It smells like outside, right? It's an ordinary experience. It's not about the smell. It's about like appreciating everything about the beast, right? Not just the cute stuff, but the sort of the whole range of the experience. 
And so when we open to the present moment, like the clothes against the skin right now for us, that's for most of us a neutral experience, right? There's a kind of investment in our lives, a kind of owning kindness when we're willing like to feel how the tension is around the mouth, right? Or to feel like if we're a little cold, like to open up into that temperature, feeling of temperature, whatever it is, a little hot, a little cool, but not enough to be pleasant or unpleasant, you know? And that's how like when we're hanging out with a dear friend and we're in a more naturally loving place, it's like we're no, we notice these ordinary things, ordinary habits, affects of our friends, right? That we normally wouldn't notice if somebody knew. Somebody new comes in the room, we know what we like and what we don't like, and we generally are not aware of the neutral things. Right? So that's that's where that's why a teacher like Thich Nhat Hanh, this very well-known Vietnamese Buddhist monk, says something how turning neutral into something beautiful or whatever his words were, because neutrality, when the mind is intimate with neutrality, it's learning something essential about freedom. Right? How to be really show up to what's neutral teaches the heart something really essential in the awakening process. Like we're valuing the present moment, which means we're not feeding the fire of becoming enlightened later when experiences are not neutral, they're ex- exalted. You know, the mind is free and buoyant, all-seeing, all-knowing, or whatever we might fantasize the awakening process about, as opposed to being an actual human being with a body, an imperfect personality, an imperfect body, and imperfect friends in an imperfect world, right? And really willingly inhabiting that with sensitivity and showing up growing roots into it. Yeah, thanks Ruth for sharing with us. And we might have time for one more. So Amal, you get it before the children come. I, I really enjoyed your Dharma talk this morning, Mark. It was very, very helpful. And uh, my experience has been that the less time I spend on either extreme of aversion or fear or seeking great pleasure, uh, then the more time I have to have present moment awareness of the neutral things. Yeah. And as I become, I'm able to spend more time there with those neutral things, the more I appreciate them. I don't think I get to the point of, of love. I think that's kind of a loaded term. Maybe it's not for other people, but it is yeah. for me. And uh, I, I seek more to find contentment in that present moment and being aware of it and just being able to appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, no, that sounds really wise. Yeah, and this is our motivation, really. And there's that the place that Amos talking about is it can be a difficult transition where we've got gained some skill at not adding fuel to the fires, the greed and the aversion fires, and then we end up in this more ordinary present moment place, and we sort of miss the drama <laughs> of the fire of greed and the fire of aversion. And we don't know who we are anymore. And it's almost like a new beginning, right? And it's, this is a really important place for Dharma friendship, being around other people who are into the practice. 
and kind of learning like how to come alive in that more ordinary place of you called it contentment, ordinary love, you know, caring enough about the present moment to be sensitive, to be awake. Yeah, thanks so much, Emil, for sharing that. Yeah, the children there? Oh, maybe one more. Oh, yeah, over here. My name is my name is Julie. I want to reflect just very briefly on the aspect of the neutrality. I consider myself to be both a big fan of public radios, 91.1 for the news, because I'm very political, but that I really like the classical music. But really, it's it's very wonderful that I've stopped turning, I've turned off the radio. And just this morning with the sunshine, I just said, no public radio. You've already <laughs> listened to public radio. And it was just the neutral, neutral neutrality of driving across through Como Park and the joy of seeing the trees and the color of the trees still, the <laughs> oak trees. And I just... I love it that I'm turning off the radio and I'm so much more present and feeling love because I'm not distracted. Yeah, thanks for that. It's a nice place to end. Thanks for all the great comments, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org